Hello, welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 192. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. It is fall. There's a chill in the air. We're all drowning in pumpkin spice. We got out our, our lamb's wool, hand-woven, skin-tight, grafted-to-our-bodies sweaters with those weird little um, wooden buttons on the front that look really cool, but they don't actually stay in the buttonhole, but it's okay because you look good, and we are set for autumn weather. Never mind I'm wearing a t-shirt and shorts right now, but it's fall, darn it, so we got to be ready. One way to get ready is to get out your hot chocolate and sit and play video games. It's a kind of a rainy day here as I'm recording. I don't have hot chocolate, I have coffee at the moment. Unfortunately, it's not Irish coffee, but uh, it does the trick anyway. So, how are you guys all doing? Hope things are going well for you. Let's all put on our you know, lamb's wool sweaters and get on with the show. I wonder if Mad Mike has a lamb's wool sweater. Let's find out. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship. Or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. Alright, well over there on the Twitter, I don't see any lamb's wool. There is a reference to Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan breaks it down for those of us who need to take life a little bit less serious. Go to realrockaman.com for more info and to watch the film. Oh. Is just another promo for the film. Robotman.com really only exists to promote the movie, which I still haven't watched. I'm very proud of that. I don't know. The link just took me to the uh, the, the website page for the movie. I guess maybe there's probably a Joe Rogan appearance in the film or something. That's about it for posts over there on the Twitter recently. Oh, okay. If I go to the same Facebook post, I can actually see the quote. This is Joe Rogan. If you ever start taking things too seriously, just remember that we are talking monkeys on an organic spaceship flying through the universe. The last post before that was September 11th, um, a, a lovely photo of the flag flying high in the sunset. All of which is to say, basically, there's not much going on in uh, the Mike Muse, uh, Mad Mike Hughes camp right now, which could be telling, I guess, a problem with the rocket. Do they not have one of the new steam generator things that they need to propel it? Did they figure out, like that article we read, recently on the show that said Iraq is not powerful enough to get up to the Carmen line to uh, see the earth as you seem to plan to. I don't know. I'm kind of getting tired of waiting for an, a, an announcement about a new launch. Mike, you're kind of killing this uh, segment of my show. It looks like the Mad Mike Hughes GoFundMe page got another 20 bucks since last time. They're up to 160 out of two and a half million now. There's also, I just noticed, a Flat Earth Community Rocket Launch page we are contacted recently by a gentleman named Mad Mike Hughes. Not only is Mad Mike a daredevil, but he's also a flat earther who ran across our billboard while watching Flat Earth Media. Mad Mike's main stunt is loading himself into a rocket and firing it from a rocket launcher. The rocket then deploys a parachute and he makes his landing. In the email, he informed us he would be performing his next stunt at the end of July in a glorious rocket launch for which he said he wanted to promote Flat Earth awareness with our sponsorship. He wants the Flat Earth community to sponsor his next event. You can check out Mad Mike's last rocket jump in 2015. All right, so this was posted a while ago. Oh, okay. The page was created June 13, 
2017. Mad Mike Hughes called into a recent Infinite Plane Society live stream to discuss his rocket launch, hoaxes, Flat Earth, and more. The interview is attached. Mad Mike Hughes would like to put Research Flat Earth on the prime spot of his 17-foot rocket on both sides. He also wants to put Research Flat Earth on both sides of his mobile rocket launcher as well as a 4x4-inch area on his flight suit. Mike will be launching his rocket a mile into the air with, the, with him inside and is looking for $7,500 for sponsorship. The AP will be doing a story on his rocket launch a week prior to his launch that will be distributed across the flat earth. Mike, uh, Mad Mike's propulsion system will launch him a mile up. His rocket will then be placed in a museum with research flat earth plastered on the side. We want to help make this happen, so we are going to try and crowdsource his next rocket launch and raise the 7500 for sponsorship. Knowing that NASA doesn't send anyone to space, Mad Mike could be one of, Mad Mike could be one of the only people in the air in a rocket. This is important. We dip behind him. Brought to you by the Flat Earth Associated Press and Mad Mike Hughes and the entire Flat Earth community. They did meet their goal. The goal was $7,875 and they got $7,931. So there you go. It appears they are still taking donations though, if you would like to do so. That is the Flat Earth Community Rocket Launch. Alright, so no news is good news or bad news, I guess, depending on how you look at the dragons that inhabit the edge of the Earth. Make sure to go feed them. They're probably getting hungry. And, you know, as always, tell them I said hi. Gonna prove that the world is flat In his rocket ship Or else he'll go splat He's Mad Mike Hughes Mad Mike Hughes Yes, I'm aware there's been news about uh, President Trump doing this and that. Hurricanes. Financial news, the Cubs probably did something. I don't know. I don't really follow baseball. It's all been very exciting. But the big news this week, as I'm recording this, Gary Larson is bringing back the far side. Okay, we don't actually know that for sure, but there's been some cryptic indications that the far side may be coming back. There are a bunch of articles about this. The one I'm looking at right now is the Mercury News. Ever popular, the Far Side comic strip set to expand its online presence. It's unclear, however, cartoonist Gary Larson's, Larson will be drawing new cartoons. The beloved comic strip, The Far Side, which ran in newspapers from 1980 to 1995, updated its website over the weekend with a new cartoon of a man taking a blowtorch to a block of ice encasing some of the cartoonist, Larry's, uh, cartoonist Larson's unnamed signature characters. Those would be uh, folks like uh, cows, beehive, harried women, cavemen, that kind of thing. There was a caption on this picture, apparently, quote, uncommon, unreal, and soon-to-be unfrozen. A new online era of the far side is coming, close quote. Larson apparently is 69 at this point. We don't know if he's going to draw new cartoons or just re-release the old ones on digital, uh, you know, for, for the digital generation to enjoy. Is that a thing, the digital generation? Is that really what we're calling them now? I don't know. Apparently, Gary Larson in the past has been cautious about putting the strip online. He begged fans in 1999 to stop using his cartoons online. There's a Larson quote here. So, in a nutshell, probably an unfortunate choice of words for me, I only ask that this respect be returned, and the way for anyone to do that is to please, please refrain from putting the far side out on the internet. These cartoons are my children, of sorts, and like a parent, I'm concerned about where they go at night without telling me. And seeing them at someone's website is like getting the call at 2 a.m. that goes, uh, Dad, you're not going to like this much, but guess where I am? Close quote. Farsight never completely went away, of course. Larson himself retired at age 44 
1995. Oh, dang. If only I could have retired at age 44. I could be doing even more podcasting. Anyway, the original strips have lived on in best-selling art, uh, anthologies and calendars. The Far Side, during its run, went, uh, won the National Cartoonist Society Newspaper Panel, Cartoon Awards, and Rubin Awards. There were a lot of great, you know, the Far Side, of course, was just that single panel stop and make you think strip. Like, what the heck is this? The one that stands out for me, for some reason, is the one you see just over a grassy field and a bunch of these chickens just kind of laying there in this field. And the caption uh, reads, Boneless Chicken Farm. Well, it just makes me laugh. So I'm excited at the idea, even if it's just reprints, uh, digital reprints of the old Farside cartoons, that would be awesome. Oh, I thought of another one. The scientists working on a, like a missile, like a nuclear missile or something, and it's very delicate work. And Behind uh, the scientists working on the missile is another dude, another scientist with a, with a paper bag full of air, and you can tell he's just about to pop it. That's pretty funny, too. Makes me laugh. That's funny right there. So anyway, I'm excited. Whether it's reprints of the old ones or whether he's going to do new ones, I'm actually kind of a little nervous the idea of him doing new ones. Not that he can't, but Bert Brethed, which I, I don't think I've ever pronounced correctly, who does uh, Bloom County, uh, which is an iconic comic strip from my youth. Loved Bloom County. Loved, uh, I think it was Outland, was sort of the spinoff of that. All of that. It's been back online, too. Uh, I don't even know, I don't know if it's still running, but it has been back online, and it's been sort of, to my mind anyway, sort of a, a mixed a mixed bag of whether I was really into it or not. So I'm a little worried about that with Fireside coming back, but it could be awesome if we get new car- uh, comics, new Fireside comics. As always, send me your thoughts about the Fireside, or Bloom County, or, hey, Peanuts. I kind of like Peanuts. You may have heard that from me once or twice. Um, let me know what you think. But you know what? It may not matter anyway, because we may all get destroyed when the meteor smashes into the Earth and kills us all. Um, fortunately, NASA is on it. Anyone who, who even kind of sort of watches space news knows that there's asteroids floating around in the Earth. Hell, hell, whether you watch space news or whether you've played Atari games, you know that there are these things called asteroids, giant rocks floating around in space. They move really, really fast. And occasionally, they come close to Earth. Close meaning really, really far away, but still, in astronomical terms, a little bit too close to Earth for the comfort of Earth scientists. Other planet scientists are cool with it, but Earth scientists are a little nervous. So they've long been kind of scratching their heads thinking, what do we do? You know, the day, and I don't know if they're saying this necessarily, but I kind of get the impression that scientists kind of think it's inevitable that at some point... Our luck's going to run out, and a, uh, an asteroid is going to be headed right for Earth. And uh, you know, what do we do? We just kind of you know go outside with our binoculars and watch it, like people do with tornadoes. They want to see if they can deflect it, if they could shove an asteroid off its trajectory toward Earth. So here's what they're thinking. The article I looked at was in the MIT Technology Review, which I read all the time. Headline: We're going to slam a spacecraft into an asteroid to try to deflect it. NASA and the ESA want to know if an asteroid, want to know that if an asteroid were on a collision course with Earth, we could do something about it. No word if uh, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck will be, uh, you know, men in the spaceship, along with Clint Eastwood and um, that old dude who roomed with Al Gore in college and is a really good actor. He was in uh, Men in Black and The Fugitive. 
the hell's that guy's name? Anyway, some old guy actor. I'm trying to make a joke about that old guy astronaut movie that they made with Clint Eastwood a few years ago, Space Cowboys. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, so the point of this article is that even a tiny asteroid, like a couple hundred feet across, which is small for an asteroid, could cause a hell of a lot of damage if you hit a city on Earth. And I suspect even if you hit, even if you crash like in the ocean or something, the, the tidal wave that it would create, I would have to think, would be a huge problem too. Not to mention all the really angry octopus, octopi. For the asteroids we can track, and plenty slip by without our realizing until too late, scientists estimate their trajectories and calculate the probability of a collision. We've been lucky so far because we've not yet had to deal with a scenario where a space rock is on a crash course for Earth. If one were, we might have a shot at deflecting it onto a safer path, but we've never tried anything like that before. So, recently, 130 scientists met in Rome to hash out details about an informal collaboration between NASA and the European Space Agency called ADA, short for Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment. That is unbelievably cool. Uh, ADA refers a pair to a pair of missions designed to slam a spacecraft into a near-Earth asteroid and then study the impact to see how feasible it might be for humans to push an asteroid off its trajectory should we ever need to. Today, uh, this is a quote from ESA's Ian Tarnelli, Today we're the first humans in history to have the technology to potentially deflect an asteroid from impact in the Earth. The key question that remains to be answered is, are the technologies and models that we have good enough to actually work? Before you drive a car, you need to have an insurance policy. Well, ADA is the insurance policy for planet Earth. So here's what they're going to do. They're going to take a half-ton chunk of metal and launch it in July 2021 and watch it make its way toward 65803, Didymus, a binary asteroid made up of one big asteroid orbited by a smaller moonlet. That's kind of cute. A little moonlet. So they're going to watch this thing. Uh, for 16 months, after 16 months, DART will arrive. That's the name of this big chunk of metal, the double asteroid redirection test. DART will arrive at Didymos and crash into the moonlet at more than 14,700 miles per hour. That collision might be enough to change the orbit and velocity of the moonlet around the primary body by a fraction of a percent, which is tiny, but measurable by telescopes. Then, an Italian-made CubeSat called Licia Cube will separate from DART right before impact and take direct images of the collision. If it works, it'll be the first time in hu history humans have physically changed the orbital trajectory of a space-based object. It's also going to test some new technology uh, with propulsion and that kind of thing. And then again, another one called HERA, ESA's baby in the ADA collaboration that's going to launch in 2023, and we'll get to Didymos five years after that. So yeah, they're working on this thing, but it's going to be years before they know if it actually works. So cross your fingers that the asteroid doesn't hit until, like, several years from now. If it does hit, then it's going to be a hell of a lot easier for the aliens at Area 51 to escape. Why do I mention that? Because recently, there was a huge, massive wave of people, two and a half million people, storming the gates at Area 51 in Nevada, here in the States. It was epic. In the sense that only about 150 people showed up, and mostly what they did is take selfies of themselves uh, in dopey green alien masks that they bought at the gift shop at one of the many tourist stops along the way to Area 51. Occasionally uh, snapping photos of bemused cops assigned to go stand out by the gates of Area 51 and watch this nonsense go on. However, there is, as with all good things, a video game tie-in. 
An article on GameCrate.com, headline, When We Used to Storm Area 51 at the Arcade, gives a little summary of the uh, Area 51 planned uh, storm Area 51. There's a page on Facebook, I don't know if it's been taken down now, because the person who created it I had heard or read was kind of freaked out that, oh crap, he might have done something really bad here. But there was or is a page on Facebook called Storm Area 51, They Can't Stop All of Us, um, which was a call to just do that, storm the gates at Area 51. Uh, as I said, it kind of ended up not being much of anything, which probably gave the Facebook creator uh, a good sigh of relief. Groom Lake Air Force Base, colloquially known as Area 51, has been the subject of speculation and conspiracy theories for more than 60 years. The facility's operations are highly classified, and the remote location is as close to the middle of nowhere as it's possible to get in the U.S. Security around the base is extremely tight, with a strict no-fly zone enforced. Signs posted around the perimeter notify visitors that deadly force is authorized, and photography and trespassing are strictly prohibited. The base has been used, we know, for experimental aircraft, and residents have reported seeing strange patterns of light in the sky for decades. Popular culture has built up Area 51 as a mecca for those who want to believe aliens have visited us, all of which makes this a very intriguing place to think about. So, this article says, with that in mind, let's take a look back in time to explore other alien, uh, to explore another alien raid as we revisit Atari's 1995 arcade shooter, Area 51. The year is 1994, and Atari is in serious trouble. Despite being synonymous with video games in the late 70s and early 80s, the brand hasn't had a profitable game for years. The Jaguar home console, which launched late last year, is struggling to find an audience and the aggressive marketing campaign doesn't appear to be helping. The situation is clear, Atari needs a hit game and fast. The renaissance brought on by 1991 Street Fighter II is flagging, and arcade operators want games which offer something you can't play on a home console. Games with specialized peripherals seem to be performing well, like uh, light gun games, including Sega's Virtual Cop and Konami's Lethal Enforcers. So Atari gets Ed Logg, one of their few remaining star developers, on the project, which he calls Bounty Hunter. But... Log, seeing the writing on the wall, defects to join Electronic Arts before completing Bounty Hunter. Atari takes the code that he had written to another team called Mesa Logic, but they came back and asked Atari if they could come up with their own concept for the gun game instead of completing Logs. Mesa Logic's head Robert Weatherby began working with his team on a new concept inspired by the X-Files and an article in Popular Science about the secret of Air Force facility. They came up with a fast-paced shooter called Area 51. You are a member of the Elite Star Special Tactical Advanced Alien Response Unit responding to a crisis at the Alien Containment Facility. Extraterrestrials known as Kron have, defected, have infected the base, the base's staff with a mutagenic virus transforming them into decaying zombie-like humanoids, which are still capable of using advanced weaponry throughout the base, so fighting past them to activate Area 51's nuclear self-destruct is no easy task. I don't remember this game at all, Apparently it was really popular. Area 51's popularity has to do with its many secrets. Shooting targets in a specific order or aiming at out-of-the-way breakables would frequently lead to a side area where the players could earn tons of power-ups, take down a room full of unaware aliens, or, because this was the 90s, get to see a scantily clad female for a few seconds. The most famous of these easter eggs was called Cron Hunter Mode, and was activated if the player ignored the alien threat to deliberately shoot the first three star members who showed up on screen. The mode didn't change gameplay, but altered the visuals to resemble, pre resemble Predator's thermal vision, as seen in the 87 movie. Atari fast-tracked a sequel, as well as some home conversions for console players. Despite its success, Area 51 wasn't enough to save Atari. 
and the company gave up on selling Jaguar consoles just a few months after the shooter hit arcades. Both the PlayStation and Sega Saturn received faithful home versions, though the Saturn wasn't capable of displaying the action over the full TV screen and had a border frame surrounding the game space. All this is a little bit far afield from what we do here at Atari Bytes, but I thought it was interesting and timely, you know, given the, uh, the news about Area 51. Gee, I wonder where we could go to hear more about arcade games. Oh, I don't know. Maybe Pie Factory? There you go, guys. Uh, a free plug for your show. Uh, I don't know if you've ever talked about Area 51 on, on your show. Uh, if you have, uh, everybody go look for that episode. If you haven't, well, here, there's a free idea for you. All right, well, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is Hunt and Score. That's right, we have to do both. Sorry, you can't just phone it in and do one or the other. Hunt and Score, an Atari game from 1978. Hunt and Score, a.k.a. Concentration, a.k.a. A Game of Concentration, a.k.a. Memory Match, uh, which was what it was called on the Sears Telegames. This is one of 11 titles in Atari's second wave of game releases. The game was programmed by Jim Huther, Huther, a video version of the classic Memory Game, one of a handful of games that used Atari's keypad controller. So how do you play, for the one of you listening probably who doesn't know how to play memory? As I said, we're using the keyboard control. Uh, there are two versions of the game. There's a 16 square matrix and a 30 square matrix. For those of you who want to get crazy. Each game version is played the same. The only difference is the number of matrix squares. Behind each numbered square is an object. Each player takes a turn by choosing two matrix squares. When a player chooses a square, an object is revealed. If the two squares' objects are identical, the player scores one point. Here are the objects. Ladybug, Butterfly, Ranger, which I think in the field report I just called Creepy Guy with a Hat, Crab, Television, Bell, Flying Saucer, Deer, Automobile, Castle, Bunny. Oh, it's a bunny. Oh, that was a kangaroo. Anyway, Llama, Seagulls, which I thought were giraffes, Sailboat, and Table and Chairs, which is a really weird choice, but all right. When you choose two squares with identical objects behind them, a second er, or sound signifying a correct answer occurs. The two squares disappear from the matrix. You score one point, uh, parentheses. If the difficulty is in B position, a player scores two points each time a correct match is made, and you receive another turn. When you select two squares who ob- whose objects are not identical, a sound signifying an incorrect answer occurs and bores into your brain. Sorry, I added that part because it's really obnoxious. Uh, also, the two objects disappear and the number reappear on the square. In two-player games, the other player makes a selection. In one-player games, the computer scores one point and you select another two squares. So the computer gets points for not doing anything? I guess that's just practice for when the computer overlords take over. Wild cards. Some games will feature a wild card behind two of the matrix squares. A wild card automatically matches any object, scoring one point for the player who selects it. In all hunt and score games, you score one point for each pair of matrix squares you select with identical objects behind them. When the difficulty is in the B position, you score two points for each match. In one player games, you score a, your score appears on the left side of the screen. The number of incorrect selections appears in the upper right corner of the screen. In two player games, the left keyboard controller player's score appears in the upper left corner of the screen. The right controller player's score appears in the upper right corner. Each player uses a keyboard controller, if you didn't know that already, to make selections. In two-player games, the left controller player begins the game. In one-player games, 
use the left controller, a number flashes on each matrix square behind each square is an object. To select a matrix square, press the number of the matrix square on the controller. The number you press appears on the top of the screen. After you press the keyboard number, enter it into the computer by pressing the enter pound sign button on the keyboard. The object behind the square is revealed. If you press the wrong keyboard number by mistake, the controller explodes in your hand. Oh, wait, sorry. You just have to immediately press the correct number you want, then enter it into the computer, or press the erase, which is the little asterisk button, and then uh, and then the correct number. If you're playing with 30 matrix squares, you're the boss. Oh, actually, the computer will not accept any number from the keyboard over 30. That's right, don't trust anybody over 30, and don't enter a matrix number over 30. In game with 16 squares, note that the computer will not accept any number entries over 16. Slide the difficulty switch to the B position and the player receives two points, which we already know. In the A position you get one point. I did not play a wild card game, just for reference. I don't think I mentioned that in the field report, because I don't need no stinking wild card. That's how I roll. Our friends over there at GameFAQs called Hunt and Score kind of like Where's Waldo meets Goldfish. People like finding things that they know are somewhere around but that are hidden. Just think about it. We all grew up playing hide and seek, and when we were forced to by our teachers in elementary school, one of our favorite kinds of books to check out were the Where's Waldo ones. Then you've also got Go Fish and Marco Polo into the list somewhere. Hunt and Score is a fun matching game that you can play solo or alongside a friend in a two-player in two-player action. Playing the game of Hunt and Score is about as simple as the game's layout. So how are the graphics? What graphics? Hunt and Score doesn't really have any major visuals. With Hunt and Score, the controls are as easy as possible. Has great replay value because it's a title that takes a kind of game that has always been popular it makes it even more enjoyable like the majority of the atari 2600 games in my collection i have libraries full of memories from playing hunt and score if you hunt this game down you will score by finding a game that will prove to be fun and enjoyable for many years and decades to come four out of five wow i did not expect that game facts all right good on you after the break remember match game the cheesy 70s game show where gene rayburn would wear a bad polyester suit and we have a skinny microphone while leering creepily, but presumably harmlessly. I, though I haven't seen the uh, inevitable biography come out. Uh, while pseudo-celebrity guests made double entendres at each other. The game on this show today isn't that. Also, my mic is way bigger. Jamie are testing the truth of that delightful idiom, you can't polish a you-know-what. Adding to the unpleasantness... We're not actually polishing turds, we're playing a turd-like game this week. No, that's unfair. We've all played a bazillion games of concentration, memory, whatever you want to call it, when we were kids or when we had kids we were playing games with. Um... I think it's fair to say it's just not that compelling of a game. Even if you call it Hunt and Score, you're polishing the turd that is the memory game, basically. But we're committed to doing this. It's going to be, I'm sure, much more exciting in computer form on our screen. So let's find out if that's true. All right, I am playing the one player because, as we've noted many times, I'm a podcaster and I have no friends. The one player version on the 30 card layout. I have my keyboard controller. I am ready to rock. 
Let's do this. All right. Gee, where should I start? I will start with number one. A car. 30. Okay, you don't have to be a jerk about it. Um, it was a spaceship of some sort. I, I should mention, there is no incidental music in this game. The only sounds you get are that obnoxious noise when you mess up, or a little chime when you actually pick the correct match. So, I think to fill in space, uh, you know, the dead space, I will be, I think I will be humming the theme to Indiana Jones. I was watching a, a piece about John Williams on the, uh, on some new show earlier today, so I think that's what I will do. <laughs> Picking number one, I picked number one already. Pick number 15. It's a ladybug. But what is 23333? Oh, some sort of kangaroo. We did not enjoy that. Alright, we'll try again. 27 is a table and chairs, which is an odd choice for a matching card, but okay. Number seven. Did I do that already? No, it's a creepy guy's face with a hat. How about number ten? Two giraffes. Let's say. Uh, and number five. A crab. This is some exciting stuff, isn't it? Eighteen. Oh, the crab again. And a five. Boom, y'all. Suck it. That's how you do memory. That's how you hunt and score, y'all. Well, as riveting as that is, I'm not going to play this all the way through. Uh, all the matches, because... Absolutely nothing happens at the end of the game. You would think there'd be some music or some flashy flashy on the screen or something, but no, you just make the last match, which they make you do, by the way. When there's only two cards on the screen, to make the game end, you have to put in that last match. How could you screw that up? But they evidently think it's possible. So uh, you have to make that last match, uh, and then nothing happens. So I think we should all take a collective moment to catch our breath, put away the... Uh, the, the bottles, uh, you know, we've we've made out with the uh, the person of our choice, over the joy of our epic win. You know, we gotta take time to let the recreational drugs uh, course through our veins, and uh, and then move on with the rest of the show. So, while we do that, back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Car by Car podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. Here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, Very Short Stories Inspired by Old Games and Odd Thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. 
I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. So here's the thing about Hunt and Score. I actually kind of agree with game facts. It is kind of fun, in a totally harmless sort of way. I can absolutely see, I wouldn't play with my games with my kids now, but when they were, if I had the Atari out when they were three or four or five, I can totally see it, playing this with little kids or being a little kid playing this game. Absolutely. There is something inoffensively satisfying about matching stuff. It does feel good to clear that board and get everything matched. I would have done it when I did the field report. I would have played the whole thing, except to listen to someone play a matching game, somewhat less satisfying. So I didn't I didn't make you listen to all of that, but I kind of wanted to. After I got a match or two, I kind of wanted to play it out and get down to that last match. I don't know what it is, but it does feel good to do that. So I'm a little, it's a little weird that one of the sets of cards is a table and chairs, but you know, why not? You can pretty much have anything on there. Could be animals, could be vehicles, could be firemen, policemen, doctor, uh, veterinarian, whatever. You know, for you older folks, could be boobs. I don't know. Whatever you want to put on there. Put some, make some cards, put them on there. You'll have a delightful time playing Hunt and Score or Memory. Or I actually like Memory as a title for this game rather than Hunt and Score. Hunt and Score to me is a little misleading. When I had this cartridge, I don't know where I got it. I think it was in a, a, a lot of games that I bought at some point. I certainly didn't go out looking specifically for Hunt and Score. And I first saw the title and I thought, okay, well maybe it's some sort of shooting game or something. I didn't really know what it was until I started looking at it for this week's episode. But I'm, I'm, it's fine. It's, it's kind of like Hangman, which is also uh, an inoffensive game, but still somehow supremely satisfying to complete. So, yeah, uh, I, I give it big props, too. Might be nice, you know, to have a little more music, uh, maybe a little more going on with the visuals, but you don't really need it. It's still fun, as it is. So, what I'm saying is, go buy Hunt and Score. Actually, you know what? I take it back. I bought this at a used game store here in town, Disc Replay. Uh, go check it out. And I just noticed the tag on the back. It's, I paid 99 cents for this game, which seems about right. Occasionally they will get loose carts in there, although lately they've been more of the same, you know, the typical titles that you see over and over again, the, the 99 cent ones. Um, so I haven't been there as much. Yeah, go pick this up. Go to your used game store, which you should do anyway, uh, you know, support local business and all that. All right, well, it's time to match you up with this week's story. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This week's story is titled, No Match for Me. You've got your spelling bees and sports contests, dance shows, choir, and all the rest. But for me, there's only one competition that truly soars. And that, my friends, is a good game of hunt and score. Doesn't matter what you call it, what's in a name, memory, concentration, or even just match game. In college, they called me hunt and score because I was the best at ladies, games, and more. No one plays the game like me. My focus is fierce. I destroy my opponents, send them home in a hearse. At making card matches, I'm one of a kind. 
bro putting things in order is how I unwind. Challenge me? You don't have the guts. Make you so nervous you'll get a thousand paper cuts. I can match anything on a card. Don't you know nothing's too hard? Animals, vehicles, occupations too. Once they even match monkey butts and poop in a zoo. Wherever there's a table full of overturned cards, my play is swift and intense, shattered glass into shards. And you know, of course, I can match those bits up too. If you oppose me, you'll be royally screwed. My girl never understood why I do what I do. Guess matching hearts with hers made me a fool. Do I think it's ironic a man so alone makes his life about matches, not picking up a phone? I don't know about that, but one thing's for sure. I've paired up my soul with Hunt and Score. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod and Comptech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Mike Mann for the Mad Mike Hughes theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, which you have figured out by now. But make sure you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That way, the Apple Podcast algorithm will match potential listeners with this show. See what I did there? Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, look us up on Instagram. And don't forget, you can call and leave a voicemail about any damn thing you want by calling 563-265-1978. Check out the new website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. For all sorts of stuff. There's information about this show, links to episodes, and social media. You can also find out about my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. You can find out about books that I've written and some of the places that you can order the, those books. All right there in one place, carnivalofgleecreations.com. Also, please consider supporting the show financially by making a donation on the Atari Bytes Patreon page. And remember, there are new tiers. You get new stuff over there now. You can get episodes early. You can get bonus episodes. Lately, we've been watching Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures cartoon series and talking about that. All sorts of stuff you can't get uh, by just being a regular listener of this show. Shout out to my current stalwart patrons, Michael Tyler and G-Ray Defender. You guys are awesome. It's a match made in heaven. And you guys can be a match made in heaven, too. Go check out the Patreon. You can also pick up shirts and mugs that say things like, go play some old games they've missed you, at the AB underscore pod underscore store on Zazzle.com. New stuff will be coming to the podcast store eventually, too. I need to get some new ideas. I need to make some changes over there. If you have ideas of things you'd like to see, let me know. Links to all of this in the show notes. Hey, hey, do you love Snoopy? Yes, yes, you do. And you definitely know someone else who does. Charlie Brown, Linus, Woodstock, the whole Peanuts gang. Legendary comic strip, TV, film, merchandise, all sorts of stuff, all sorts of ancillary projects, playwrights, authors, actors who have done things in and around the Peanuts universe. We cover all of that on a monthly show called It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. Recently, I had the actual guy who did the voice of Charlie Brown on a bunch of stuff in the 80s. I've had graphic novelists. I've had authors. I've had all sorts of people on the show, plus a lot of fun reviews of all sorts of Peanuts stuff. So go check out that show. Tell your friends. 
who love Snoopy, and you know a bunch of people who do, to check out that show. Next time on Atari Bytes. Auto Racing. Gee, I wonder what that game is about. Of course, I thought this week Hunt and Score was about uh, shooting stuff. So, who knows what auto racing is about. But we'll find out next week. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.